Alright, hello there everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host, as usual. Before we begin, please, as always, like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, anything and everything you can do to help the product, uh, to interact with it, help the algorithm. If you've done all that, please share. Tell someone you know about the show if you think they'll enjoy it. Point them in my direction. Maybe they hate it. And look, if you have an enemy that you think I will annoy, point them in my direction. I will give you at least a little bit of time to have annoyed them. And now, if you have someone who referred you to me, thank you for listening, if you're a newer listener. And you now get to decide if the person who referred you here is a friend who thought you'd enjoy it, or an enemy who thinks I would annoy you. Stew on that. Uh, but any and all of that that you can do, it helps a lot. Thank you very, very much. Uh, yeah, as always. All right, we got stuff today, people. Stuff. Yesterday morning, for me at least yesterday morning, UFC 280, man, what a disappointment. It was so good on paper, right? It was such a good card on paper. And what we got was... uh. It wasn't bad. I don't mean to imply that it was terrible. When I say disappointing, it's purely relative to what I thought were even reason. The expectations placed on UFC 280 were not unreasonable given the strength of the card, right? But we uh, there, there was some struggles here. Not again. Not everything was bad, but boy, were there struggles. Boy, were there struggles. So we'll review all of that. Because there's a lot of fallout we have to discuss when it comes to this. Uh, there's stuff. Also, the UFC has another event this weekend. UFC on ESPN Plus 71. They're back at the Apex, so no one cares. Um, uh, it's got a good main event. I mean, my jokes aside. It's got a pretty good main event. Uh, so, we will be previewing that card. And then news. Because news. And there's some news this week. Yes, there is, in fact, some news. All right. Uh, one other thing before we really kind of get going here, I suppose. Um, I don't get terribly personal here all that often, because I assume you don't care. So, in the spirit of that, I'll keep this brief, but my, I'm not going to tell you when my birthday is. But it was recently. And... I don't know. This one got me down a little bit. So if I sound a little bit different, if I if the tenor of this podcast is a little bit different, well, I clicked over another milestone on the old biological odometer there, and it might be depressing me a little bit more than I anticipated. <laughs> so yeah. wanted to throw that out there and just give you all a heads up. Uh, all right, let's move on. No need to be depressed by my issues in that respect. UFC 278. UFC 280. Uh, we just clicked it over from this 270s, okay? Give me a break. We lost fights for this card. Um, what did we lose? Not so, Almost not surprisingly, we lost Zubaira to Hugov, who had another weight issue for the umpteenth time in that guy's relatively short UFC career. C- certainly short in number of fights, if not short in years. Uh, what else did we lose? Let's see, we lost 
think that one got moved. There was a heavyweight fight that got moved around. Um, we lost, like, during fight week. We were supposed to get Magomed Mustafaev and Yamato Nishikawa. Apparently, the promotion that Nishikawa is currently signed to made a stink about this. And, well, he's stuck fighting. I believe it's Shudo. Is it Shudo? I want to say Shudo, but don't quote me on that. Um, what was the other one that we lost? I feel like there was one more. It was like during the week we had an issue with. I might just be thinking of the. Um, I might just be thinking of Tuhugov in that respect. But we did lose a couple of fights, so we wound up with a. What was the total number of fights on this when it was all said and done? We had a five fight main card. Good. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We, Twelve. So. You know, 12's pretty good. 12's ca I think 12 is kind of the ideal number. Because um, the UFC has enough fighters, they have to give them fights, so I, I don't mean to imply that... You know, 11 might be more ideal, but I think that might create logistical issues with how many fights they have to give to various fighters given the size of their roster. Uh, more than 12, I think, is pushing it. Is really pushing it. And trying to keep the main card to five fights is probably, again, that's probably optimal. Especially when you've got two title fights. If you got two or more five-round fights on your main card, do not go more than five fights. So, but our main event. You know, I'm going to pat myself on the back just a little bit, because I don't do that very often. Uh, mostly because I don't have reason to, I... <laughs> occasionally surprised when people you know take my analysis all that seriously considering I only remember the stuff that I failed at but uh, Islam Makashev defeats Charles Oliveira via arm triangle in the second round uh, after winning the first pretty pretty fairly like it's not that Oliveira had nothing going in the first round but there's there's no doubt who won the first round so um, one of the things I said, there's a couple of things that struck me, one of which I didn't talk about last, two of which actually I didn't talk about last week. Um, one, I have no excuse for not talking about. I didn't really think about it until after our podcast was done. One, I had, I misplaced my kind of notes that I had made and just forgot to bring it up because it's a more macro discussion about those two. But, uh... Islam, the one that I was going to touch on and just, again, misplaced some of my material, Islam Makashev's defense is absurd. Like, I think coming into this fight, he absorbed less than one strike per minute on average throughout his UFC run. And I, I cannot tell you how ridiculous a statistic that is. Uh, versus Oliveira, who, in his current run... Which, you know, it sucks to see his 10-fight winning streak or whatever come to an end. But he part of what was so transformative for Oliveira on this most recent run to the title, which he attained and defended. Defended? Yeah. Yeah, the, the poor A fight was a defense. Because um, he won it when he beat Chandler. Um, anyway. 
but he became much more offensive and much more aggressive. Like nothing, there's so much forward pressure from that guy, just always in your face. It's one of the things that was a big deal when he fought uh, Poirier, just always in his face, getting into the clinch, working from there, making Poirier uncomfortable, making him fight at a pace he was not comfortable sustaining. And consequently, one of the big narratives that I was looking at when it came to Makashev and uh, and Oliveira was if Oliveira's offense and his pace could kind of penetrate this defensive shell. I mean, that, that's kind of the wrong way to conceptualize Makashev's defense because that defense in MMA is more than purely defense. You know, part of the way, one of the ways you can, you know, remove being hit or taking offense is... Uh, by having your own offense be effective, and that's a lot of what Makashev does. If you're, you know, stuck in the clinch with him and he's got control of it, if he takes you down, it's not that he's playing defense, but he has muted your offense. And Makashev neuters offense better than just about anybody. Like, I really struggle to think of someone who is so effectively disarms his opponents. Or her, for that matter. So that was one of the things that I thought kind of you know needed to pay attention to. Can Oliveira get around that? Can he force that to be different? Because if the numbers were, if the numbers for both men were essentially what they have been to this point, then that favors Makashev pretty heavily. Um, the other thing that I didn't really realize and I should have mentioned, uh, this pertains to Oliveira. Um, while the man became incredibly offensive, he's not... This is going to sound like I'm dumping on the guy, and I'm not. Okay, please understand that I'm not insulting him with this. His offense is not terribly um, varied. I was going to say dynamic, but that's not the right word. His offense is pretty dynamic, actually, once he gets going. But it's not, it's not terribly varied. He's got a few things that he does pretty reliably and it's more than just the basics it's more than just like a one-two leg kick he's got more tricks up his sleeve than that but if you watch a bunch of his fights in succession you'll see the patterns emerge you'll see the tools he likes to use and that's okay that look every fighter is like that okay again this is not me dumping on the guy this is me saying that there's a lot of tape on Oliveira. This guy's been you know, in the UFC for like 10 years. The, and he fights pretty regularly. And there's some patterns that emerge if you look, even if just his most recent you know, winning streak, even if you want to limit that to the fighters you consider to be at the elite level. If you start with the Tony Ferguson, if you start with the Kevin Lee win, like the Kevin Lee through Justin Gaethje, there's very clear weapons he prefers and there's very clear patterns he prefers. So, and... Islam Makashev's team, when you're in the uh, a little bit AKA and uh, I don't know what you would want to call, you know, Khabib and whatnot, but that that team that team is very good, and they're very good about analyzing fighters and about breaking down their games, about generating proper patterns and proper responses to what the other guy is doing. And Makashev seems to be a very diligent student. Uh, this is something a lot of people who have 
worked with him or and, and look some of this is you know okay you train the guy you train with the guy of course you're going to be complimentary but when a lot of them say the same thing about again what a you know how studious he is how responsive he is to instruction and to coaching you know, being coachable in that respect is a very valuable attribute uh, when used properly of course it can obviously not be but so that was one of the things I forgot to mention. Um, anyway, I mentioned uh, the outcome already. Uh, yeah, this this wasn't terribly... When I say this wasn't terribly competitive, I don't mean to imply that Oliveira had no success. I just mean to say that a lot of us who looked seriously at this said, you know, if, and this is a bit of an if, but... If Makashev's submission defense is what we all think it is, because he hasn't fought someone who's really... Uh, look, it's, it's very fair to bring up that Makashev's strength of schedule is not what Charles Oliveira's was going into this fight. Still is, for that matter. Like, they've both got very... They both had good winning streaks coming into this. I think it was 10 and 9. Who had the better strength of schedule? The answer is Charles Oliveira and... It's not especially close. You know, Oliveira's fighting Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje. And you know, Makashev's fighting, and I don't mean to disparage these gentlemen. You know, he's fighting Drew Dober and Bobby Green and... Um, uh, oh, who's the Brazilian gentleman? I want to say how... Uh, it's not Howley Piava, he's a flyweight... Uh, Moises, Tiago Moises, or Dan Hooker. God, I forgot Dan Hooker for a second there. Like, none of those guys are bad fighters, okay? But the closest you could get to somewhat to any name on kind of the level of what Oliveira had been running through would be what Dan Hooker probably, and probably Dan Hooker. Again, you can maybe argue a little bit there, but I'd, I'd say Hooker. So, strength of schedule absolutely goes to Oliveira. But, and again, what uh, this is one of the things I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit here. I said last week that there's a lot of people who treat Charles Oliveira's guard like Chernobyl. Like, you can't go there. And Oliveira's guard is good. I don't mean to imply otherwise. But... That's not really where he does his best submission work. He does his best submission work if he can, like, from the back. Or in transition. Transition is really where he does the majority of his work. If you watch what he does, he gets you to make a bad call and then punishes you for it. Whether that's a desperate shot, whether that's a desperate get-up, whether that's a bad scramble. It, I mean, he himself describes his jiu-jitsu as jiu-jitsu of opportunity rather than necessarily positional uh, progress. Which is fine, it's brought him tremendous success. But it also garnered him a, again, it garnered a reputation, because sometimes when we talk about these things, we don't discuss the nuance of uh, where someone's jiu-jitsu is very good. You know, some guys are very good top players. Some guys are actually less good top players. It's a little bit weird when you think about it, but it's true. 
there are some fighters, some very good you know, jiu-jitsu grapplers, who are actually better off of their back than they are on top. They struggle to pass guard. But you put them on their back, and they're, you know, drowning you. And uh, obviously the reverse is true. I mean, BJ Penn, believe it or not, and again, there's some timeline discrepancy here, but uh, BJ Penn had a reputation for being a very good jiu-jitsu practitioner, and for to be abundantly clear, his the dude was a prodigy in jiu-jitsu. That's where his nickname comes from, because of how good he was at it. But if you look at his MMA career, his bottom game, not terribly great. Like, it wasn't compelling. His top game was disgusting and terrifying. But you put BJ Penn on his back and... It wasn't easy to get him there, mind you, but if you could get him there, it wasn't always the most compelling. And when it comes to Charles Oliveira, the long and the short of this is, like, people were afraid of his jiu-jitsu. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have been. It's very good. But it led to a kind of generalized assumption about best practices relative to him that I'm not sure was true. That I can't go to, to the ground with this guy no matter what. That, and that's not accurate. You can't be sloppy, but if you can get on top in a solid position, he's been out-wrestled before. He's been controlled before. Like, that's a thing. And history has shown that. And, I mean, even recent history. Michael Chandler spent a good chunk of time in his guard in the first round of their fight. And Makashev being a grappler first and foremost, I figured he wouldn't—he wasn't going to be afraid to go to the ground with uh, Oliveira, and he was going to be good enough to to not be caught in some of Oliveira's uh, submission game. Lo and behold, that's pretty much how the first round played out. Uh, second round, Oliveira again later in the round. Oliveira tries a jumping knee. Which he does a lot. Um, again, if you look at Oliveira's fight history, he likes the jumping, technically would be a jumping switch knee. Um, usually with his opponent against the fence, not exclusively, but usually. And if you're not mindful of that technique, you can be countered pretty easily. And in this instance, Makashev kind of took a slight angle. He got hit with the knee, then he landed a little bit on, like, towards the chest. So it's not like he completely avoided it, but he severely mitigated it. And then just cracked Oliveira with a right hook. And Makashev fights Southpaw, so again, his lead hand in that instance. And just dropped him. Um, Got on top. Uh, attacked an arm, moved to half guard pretty quickly, attacked an arm triangle, kind of in transition. Oliveira tried almost to give his back, which is something you can do if you're caught in an arm triangle, because it's hard to maintain the integrity of the strangle. Uh, and people will take the back and abandon the attack. If they're, especially if they're worried about losing the position and the, and the attack, they'll just, okay, I got, I've got your back now and I start working from here. Um, Makashev forced him back to his back and got to side control, you know, on the dangerous side, got the submission pretty quickly, actually. I mean, Oliveira knows when he's beat. 
in the jujitsu world, like, and there's no shame in knowing, like, yep, that's it, I'm done. And to say nothing of Makashev's squeeze, got, remember, people, I've seen, I've seen a couple of instances of a arm triangle finished from half guard on the safe side. It's rare, again, I've seen it only a couple of times. Um, I saw Makashev do it to Dober, which is the point I'm going to make in a second. I saw Sarah McMahon do it to um, Ketlin Vieira, which was a little bit odd, but... Or is it the other way around? Did Vieira catch her with one? I think it was Vieira who got McMahon, now that I think... Those are the participants, but that would have been one of Vieira's wins, so forgive me about... Sorry, wrong ones, but... Uh, which is possible... If the big kind of component there is if the person on bottom doesn't quite know how to use their half guard in ways to upset your base and kind of stop you from maximizing your squeeze and your power and your push, um, it's just hard to do from there. But one of the components of making that work, uh, you need a squeeze, man. You need a gorilla grip. And... Watch, uh, watch Islam Makashev when he gets that on Dober. Um, dude, every muscle that guy has, especially in his upper back, it just pops. Um, he's, he's got, he's got freakish strength. Um, just loosely related. I've only ever seen an arm triangle finished from inside the guard once. I'm sure it's happened more than this, especially if you get, you know, wide skill disparities on like the regional scene. But uh, Rick Story hit one from inside the guard. And I can't tell you how strong you have to be to pull that off. I mean, th- there's technique that goes into that as well. You know, you get up at the appropriate angle. You, you drive in. You use your legs to help drive in and whatnot. There's other stuff. But your grip, man, that's got to be other freaking worldly. And Makashev, he's got to have one of those two. Like you look at his control, and you look at some of the ways he's able to get that squeeze going from positions that should not be as effective as they are, but because it's him, they're very effective. Uh, really, really, this is the best win of Makashev's career, and I don't mean because he won the belt. This is the best fighter he's ever fought. Uh. By a pretty significant margin, this would be the this is the best win in his career. Uh, he's his defense, and when I say his, again, when I say his defense, I don't just mean defensive responsibility. I mean the way he removes weapons from his opponent. It's really hard to beat that guy. It's just hard to find him. It's hard to damage him. You know his striking. I've had this discussion with people, and I've mentioned it here on the show, actually. Makashev's striking is technically better than Khabib's. But I don't think Makashev's striking opens up his wrestling game the way that Khabib's striking does. Khabib's striking was designed to facilitate his A game in ways that Makashev's striking is not necessarily. Makashev's striking is a little bit better, kind of, for its own sake. Which is fine. Look, it's, it's clearly working for the man. This is just an observation, not a criticism. 
But I think most people overlook this a lot about Makashev and his defense. Uh, let me ask you a question, dear listener. What's the first line of defense? Right? Like, there's lines of defense. What's the first line of defense if you find yourself in a fight? Uh, I'm going to tell you, but I want you to think about it for a second. The first line of defense is your footwork. It's your movement. This is true in boxing. It's true in wrestling. It's true in kickboxing. It's true in MMA. Good positioning will account for the majority of your defense and your defensive responsibilities. Makashev's footwork and positioning in that respect, I think it's a little bit undersold. Maybe no one's really pushed him to show it off kind of the same way that Oliveira did, or maybe we just weren't looking as hard because we were looking at him relative to fighters that we didn't consider at the same level as Charles Oliveira. But he's really good about that. Really good. Uh, his offensive striking is... its Again, it's, it's a little bit slept on in some respects. Once he gets going into it, though, the, the technique breaks down a little bit, but this is all like minor stuff that can still be refined and corrected. Uh, I think... I think the other thing we need to consider with Oliveira, and this is relative to him. While Charles Oliveira did become an offensive powerhouse, and that offense and that pressure overwhelmed some very good fighters, we said this before about him, um, it's... He's very hittable, right? Look at the number of guys, even on his run, that found him and that hurt him, in some cases, badly. And he was able to persevere, and God bless him for it, man. Like, gutting through some of those bad positions when you're hurt and figuring it out. Most people don't do that. Like, the vast majority of the human race does not do that. He did. And that deserves acknowledgement. But if you're a... I'd say smart, because that's that's kind of the wrong implications. But if you're a relaxed, calm, analytical fighter, Oliveira, in his offense and his pressure, gives you plenty of opportunity to counter him. And Makashev found that and found that regularly. It's not an accident that... Uh, Oliveira struggled to find meaningful offense against Makashev. Not that he never found it, but he struggled real. He struggled finding it in the ways he's found it on other people. Makashev made him pay pretty reliably. I mean, he cracked him with a left hand really fast off the bat in this fight. That seemed to that kind of set the tone for what was going on. Uh, so, really good win from uh, Islam Makashev, your new champion. Uh, I don't know how long he's going to hold the belt. Lightweight's... Lightweight's in a weird spot, and which is more to say that I think the length of his title reign is going to be determined more by matchmaking, and I don't mean that pejoratively, than it is by anything else. There's a couple of guys coming up in the lightweight division right now. 
I are just really, really good. And some of them might have had the occasional setback, fact, on this card even, but they're younger guys. They're very good. And it's going to be real hard for Makashev, I think, to have a meaningful run. If those guys, if some of those guys start getting matched up higher and making some of the moves that they should. If we want to run Makashev through the hits of the kind of older, the last major class of lightweight, right? You know, the guys that came up with, you know, Connor, Khabib, Tony Ferguson, like that kind of, again, I hate to say era because that, that's slightly a, I don't think that's entirely accurate. But that group, you know, they're about ready to age out. Uh, I mean, you know, Connor's basically gone. Tony's fallen off of the cliff. Uh, Khabib's retired. But you, in that same group, you, you've got Chan, your Chandlers, your Eddie Alvarez's. Your, uh, Alvarez isn't with the UFC anymore, but he's that same generation of talent. You have Chandler, Gagey. Uh, Lee's not with them anymore, but which is just kind of making the point, right? That group of guys, for as great as they were, and they were great. Uh, they're kind of they're kind of going again. They're phasing out, and I don't know if Makashev is going to be the guy who rules the roost for the new upcoming generation, or if he's going to be kind of the last bookend of the previous one, where he's got the belt, he'll get a defense, maybe two, but that's kind of it. I'm not sure. Um. And that's not a knock on him. That is an expression of the strength of the division. The immediate next fight seems to be in the... Again, this was kind of... They brought um, Alexander Volkanovsky, who weighed in as the backup fighter for either one of these gentlemen if something happened. They brought him into the cage, and Khabib on the mic afterwards said, you know, we want to fly to Australia to fight the number one pound-for-pound fighter in his backyard. Of course, being, again, featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky. And Volkanovsky got into the cage. They made a, you know, uh, Makashev made a joke about how short Volkanovsky is. And, I mean, to be fair, he's not a he's not a big guy. He's like 5'6", I think. So not a very tall man, but uh, very well muscled. And uh, Volkanovsky seems very, you know, it would be a heck of a fight, right? You've got the lightweight title on the line and Volkanovski trying to become a double champion. Volkanovski is the pound for pound number one fighter in the world, which I agree with for the record. So you've got the the number one pound for pound slot against the title and Volkanovski's attempt at becoming a two weight world champion. Um, yeah, I'm down. Um, that's a heck of a fight. I know there were people poo-pooing it, and I don't know why. Here's here's kind of my counter-question to some of you people who are not really interested in this fight. I assume your counterpoint, your counter-argument would be Benil Daryush. I'm going to assume that. Because that's kind of the only realistic option in a lot of ways. You've got other guys maybe ranked differently, but... 
you've got Chandler and Poirier who are going to fight. And love that fight, don't get me wrong. But the timing just kind of becomes awkward. And that would be Poirier's, what, third title fight? Because he had the interim title fight uh, with Holloway. Then he had two shots at the full belt. Yeah, that, so call it his third shot at the undisputed title. Uh, and I don't know. I'm not saying you couldn't make the argument for him. I am saying that that's a bit of a harder sell. Uh, look, should Dar? I'm going to talk about Daryush more in detail in a minute or two here, so bear with me in that respect, but... I don't have a problem with this. No one at Featherweight, like, no one at Featherweight's getting screwed here. Right? Like, the, this would be one of the considerations. Is there someone at Featherweight who deserves a title shot who is being overlooked for their rightful opportunity so that Volkanovski can chase this? Um, and I don't think there is. Let me, let me double check the rankings real fast. Um, because I might, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am. Because um, you've got Volkanovski as champion. For some reason, Max Holloway is still the number one contender, and I'm sorry he's not. I love Max. I really do. But after that last fight, no. Yeah, Yair Rodriguez sitting at number two. Isn't he injured? Or does he have a next fight coming up? Double check that. I want to say he has... A fight coming up. Um, I okay. They're talking about maybe Rodriguez and Emmett. Then again, Emmett's face got messed up by Calvin Cater. I thought he lost that fight too. Um, but you could do that. So uh, I'm not, uh, I mean, again, Emmett, you could maybe make a case for Emmett, but again, that, that Cater fight was, I didn't think he won, and the injury, you know, his face got kind of busted up and broken up in that one, that's, that's the thing, uh, he's already beaten Ortega, you got Cater and Allen who were fighting this coming week, so the long and the short of that. There's no one who's there like, I'm healthy, I'm ready, I'm on, I'm the next deserving contender who's being completely overlooked here. Uh, different point in time? Maybe. Look, if Rodriguez and Emmett, like, were going to fight shortly, the winner of that would be your clear-cut number one contender. No argument for me. And at that point, they would be getting screwed over in favor of this. Again, somewhat pursuant to their injury status and whatnot. There's timing and stuff that goes into this. But I don't think anyone's getting overshadowed at featherweight. And if we look at lightweight, again, the current lightweight. So these have not been updated on the official UFC rankings. But you've got Makashev as champion. Oliveira might still sit at number one, followed by... Poirier, Gaethje, Chandler, Darius. Darius will bump up from his current spot at 6. Fazeev at 7. Rafael Dos Anjos at 8. Uh, Gamrot lost, but I don't think he's going to drop too far. Um, 
partially because we're getting one spot that's going to be filled by someone becoming champion. Um, you've got interesting you've got interesting fighters for Makashev there. Fazeev is interesting. Daryush is very interesting. Those two were supposed to fight, if you'll recall. Um, the Bobby Green fight, actually, was supposed to be Mikashev and Daryush. I'm very interested in that fight. You've got Rafael dos Anjos making noise about, you know, uh, Mikashev ran away from him and now he's champion. I wouldn't favor RDA in that fight. But it. Uh, but the point there is, I don't think anyone's getting obviously leapfrogged when you look at who's had shots recently and who's currently scheduled to fight and when. If we're looking at guys ranked, you know, again, 7 and 8 in Fazeev and Dos Anjos and going, well, that's interesting, and it is, but they haven't fought someone, at a, like, they don't have a big win that they're riding a wave of momentum off of. Uh, so... I'm I'm I, I, the circumstances are right at the moment where I would not personally object to this. Other people may feel differently and fair enough, but um, that's my take on it as far as that goes. I don't think it would be I don't think it would be egregious to make that fight given the current state of everything. Uh, as for what's next for Charles Oliveira, who knows? Um, Oliveira and Benil Dariush who fought on the same card it would suck for Dariush who's won like 8 fights in a row um, he might be at 9 now actually after his win but it's unfortunate for Dariush but he's going to need one more um, that's just kind of the way it is at the moment and Oliveira coming off of this loss I don't know, kind of makes sense. Um, Oliver wants to stay busy, and, I mean, this guy's had plenty of setbacks before. I don't... He might get another crack at the belt. It's entirely possible, so... Uh, not sleeping on that guy and his future at all. Uh, not the most competitive main event. Um, this was very... This was very Makashev-heavy. But... Not a bad fight, especially... Once you've seen it, I don't think there's a tremendous... Like, you might want to rewatch this once for some very specific uh, stuff to look at, but you know, there, is there tremendous rewatch value here? Not, unless you're doing, like, a big tape study on one of the two guys. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just kind of a fight. In the moment, it felt bigger, because in the moment, it usually does, and I don't mean that as an insult. All right, co-main event. Ah, uh, what a farce. <laughs> what an absolute farce um Aljamain Sterling defeats TJ Dillashaw via TKO just punches and elbows from like back mount in the second round um okay before I yell about this and I'm going and I can't get around it there's one thing I need to kind of be annoyed at myself over when it comes to discussing this fight in my preview and I mentioned that you know TJ Dillashaw at his best poses some problems for Sterling. There's a degree to which I stand by that. Now, for very specific reasons that I'll get into in a second, this was not the best version of TJ Dill TJ Dillashaw um, at all. But 
one of the things I had overlooked in kind of looking at these two guys. Um, Dillashaw throws a lot of kicks, which I knew and remembered. What I had forgotten, and maybe not even fully processed, how often his kicks get caught. A, lo- a shockingly high percentage of TJ Dillashaw's kicks get caught by his opponent. And some that's kind of to do with how he throws them. And I'm not saying it's wrong, okay? Dude's a former world champion, former two-time world champion. He's a... I'm a I, so when I say, when I, when I talk about what he's doing here, understand this isn't me saying he's doing it wrong. But this is why what's happened happens there's no tj makes no effort to retract his kicks um if you've got a more traditional martial arts background think about it like this at least this works for um my terminology everything he does is more of a there's no snap Right, there's all follow through. It's all thrust rather than snap. And this can put more power in what you're doing. Thrusting as a motion again for this. So you all understand where I'm coming from here. Little terminology. Snapping attacks reach the target. Thrusting attacks go through the target. And there's times and places to use each uh, each method. How's it my instructor phrases it? My, uh, my instructor likes to phrase it as, you know, imagine you're hitting a sheet of glass. If you're snapping, you're going to hit it and break it and then come back. If you're thrusting, you go through it. Right? And, again, this is conceptualized and visualized a lot of ways. And any any instructor will tell you, you know, something similar. It's, it, how do you generate power? Well, a big part of it is aiming beyond your target. Gets you more power. And... Dillashaw leans very, very heavily, especially in his kicks, into a lot of follow-through. So, again, a lot of motion that goes through the target. And that does generate more power. It's part of the reason his kicks can be so strong. But it leaves a lot of opportunity for the other guy to counter and to do something with it. You know, watch... Watch Dillashaw's fight versus Dominic Cruz. Cruz doesn't catch a lot of those kicks, but he does catch, he catches some. But more instructive for the purposes of this would be, look at how many times Dillashaw whiffs and is completely off balance afterwards. And you want to know why that is? It's all follow through. There's almost no control over his own body at some point, right? Now, if you think you're going to hit something, then obviously this changes the physical calculus and whatnot, so I'm not... Again, this is not me saying he sucks. But Aljamain Sterling is very, very good at catching kicks. Like, even guys who put a lot more snap on what they do, he was catching Peter Jan's kicks. Um, I think he caught one of Corey Sandhagen's. And you know, some of these guys that he's done this to, they don't hang their kicks out there nearly as much as Dillashaw does. 
and he's still catching them. He's very, very good at that. So, it's not, it's just a specific nuance of their interaction that I hadn't given enough credit to before the fight. Now, why this fight was a farce? So, immediately, they both come out, they both swing a little bit, and... This needs to be said about Sterling. Um, his striking gets a little bit undersold, because I think people don't understand it. His striking is more reminiscent of John Jones. He doesn't throw a lot of combinations. But he's got a pretty good variety of strikes he offers. And he's a very long fighter. So he kind of he kind of has adopted that school of thought, which can be a very winning school of thought. It can be a very losing school of thought at times. There is no perfect fighting style. There's no perfect methodology. There's what works best for you. And this works for him. So when you talk about him not being comfortable striking, it's not that he's not comfortable striking. He's not very comfortable in the pocket. Specifically, like that range, he's not very comfortable. And he's not very comfortable in exchanges. But forcing him into those positions is very difficult. But one of the first things that happens when these two come out, Dillashaw throws a kick, Aljamain Sterling catches it, goes for a single leg, takes TJ down, and Dillashaw, and this is where I have to yell, his left shoulder dislocates. And you can see immediately he starts struggling. Like, he's visibly reacting to what happened. Sterling passes his guard, get, spends the entire... This was a 10-8 round. Okay? That's a 10-8 round for Aljamain Sterling. He gets the mount, he gets back mount. You know, again, 10-8, easy. How Dillashaw survived that round with one arm, because he couldn't really use his left arm for anything because the shoulder's out of socket. I don't know how he survived it, but he did. Gets back to the corner, and his corner is able to get it in, more or less, at least to the, at least to the degree that the doctor comes in and says, you know, how's your shoulder? And he's able to move it enough for the doctor to go, okay, we're going to keep going. Um, second round, he gets taken down again very, very quickly. His shoulder, like, pops again, or just was not back in in an ideal circumstance, and Sterling just pounds him out. Fight's over. Okay. Um, after the fight, you know, Sterling called out a few of the other bantamweights below him, whatever. I'll get to that in a second. I need to talk about what TJ Dillashaw said. First thing Dillashaw says is he apologizes to the division because he held everything up. Uh, apparently this injury to his shoulder happened in April. Let's sink in for a second. Six months ago, half a year, he injured his shoulder, and I think he said it, like, it fell out or dislocated 20-some-odd times during camp. Uh, which is ridiculous. Um, one of the things that came out, like, he's in, when he was in the back, you know, supposed to be warming up for the fight, he wasn't, um, 
he wasn't doing pad work. Like, his shoulder was so messed up, he did not feel very confident in it, warming up, hitting mitts. I mean... So, we held up the we held up the best division in the sport, in my opinion, is bantamweight, right? I've said I'm on record for that. Best division in the sport. So the best division in the sport, with a lot of good contenders, is held up. So an injured guy can get an undeserved shot at the belt. And I'm going to say undeserved because I don't think he beat Corey Sandhagen. Alright, that's my opinion on that fight in particular. Just, I don't think he won it. But, to say nothing of... Uh, this is hard to explain. I know that when Dillashaw was out serving his suspension for uh, for his, his uh, EPO PED doohickey, I know he had both sh- shoulders surgically repaired. The shoulder joint is one of those joints, guys. Um, one, it's really important. Like, we use it a lot. So it's an important joint, and once it starts to go, this the corrective surgical measures, you never get back to 100%. If you get back to 100% strength, then there's mobility issues. If you get back to 100% mobility, which I don't even know is possible, kind of depending on the type of surgery, I guess. I'm not an expert on this. But I, this is like stuff I've gleaned, so feel free to uh, discount me here. But if you get back to a point where you have, you know, essentially good mobility, your strength will go down. Like you, you never get that back. Um, once that starts going, it just starts going. This guy spent six months um, destroying that joint. Then it gets, it pops here immediately, and is destroyed even more. Uh, I mean, he's going to have to have that surgically repaired again. And I, depending on how bad this got, he might not be able to fight again. Now, I know he's kind of coming towards the end of his career anyway. The guy's closing in on 40 at bantamweight. And he's had... I mean, he's never been... uh, Dillashaw's been hampered, or at least kind of harried by inactivity for a lot of his career, actually, if you look back at it. Um, I mean, even pre-suspension, right? Let's take a quick look at old TJ here. Um... Okay, he fought three times in 2014. 
once in 15 when he beat Henan Burrell. Uh, I believe that was to become the... That was to defend his title? Yeah, that was their rematch. Okay, so... 14, he beats Mike Easton, beats Burrell to become champion, beats Joe Soto to defend it, beats Burrell to retain it. All right? Uh, so, sorry, that's 14. 15, he only fights once. He beats Burrell to retain his belt. 2016, 2015, yeah, the one, the one fight. 16, he fights three times. He loses to Dominic Cruz, beats Austin Sow, beats John Lineker. 17, only fights once, wins the belt. 18, only fights once, defends the belt against Garbrandt. 19, only fights once, loses to Henry Cejudo at flyweight. Is suspended after that. 2021, fights once, wins the split decision over Sandhagen. Has his knee injured in that fight. 2022, and bear in mind, over a year ago, that was July of 21 when he fought Sandhagen. Year and a half later. Fights Aljamain Sterling. This will be his only fight of 2022. It might be, he might not fight next year at all. So, again, 17, 18, 19, one fight a year. That suspension, you know, he lost the two um, he lost maybe the two best years of his athletic career, you could argue. Certainly where he was within the scope of the UFC, in terms of he was still the bantamweight champion. And it, the combination of where he was promotionally and where he was physically, those would have been like his best earning years. Comes back and is not the same. Again, fights once. Fights once. Uh, so he's had that issue before. He's had kind of these off-and-on injury issues. Can you imagine how he's going to feel? How old is he specifically? He's 36. He'll be 37 in February, so fairly close. So let, let's take a quick hop into the future. Just a little bit. Not even that far. Can you imagine how badly he's going to feel physically at 43 or 45 like you know yeah, uh, yeah I took that shot against Aljamain Sterling with one arm and as a direct result of those choices as I enter a full half of my life still ahead of me I can't raise my left arm over my head that's on the table here, people. Uh, to say nothing of... Uh, I got a couple of points here that are going to kind of wrap into some of this. One, I don't know that it was ethical for his team to allow him to fight here. Like, these people knew how compromised he was. You sent that guy out there to fight the best bantamweight in the world, arguably, in Aljamain Sterling, with one arm. Think about that for just a second. If TJ had to fight this fight with his left arm tied behind his back, would you have sent him out there? 
Because that's basically what you did. That is fundamentally what you did here. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, what shot do you think you have under those circumstances? I, I, I mean this in all sincerity. You might never have had a good shot at beating Aljamain Sterling under the, like, again, 36-year-old TJ Dillashaw against Aljamain Sterling. Even the best version of what Dillashaw could muster at 36, right? Say he was, he looked, say he was as good as he was when he fought Sandhagen, okay? Let's just, hypothetically, let's put that TJ Dillashaw in the cage against Aljamain Sterling last night. Sterling still wins this, Right? I I don't have any problem saying that even. This version of Aljamain Sterling would have beaten the best version of TJ Dillashaw that could have been mustered reasonably. Like, and if you take the best version of TJ from, you know, four years ago, four or five years ago, and then put him in there, does that change things? Yes, that changes things. And okay, fair enough. We're not talking about best. I'm not talking about best ever. I'm talking about like reasonable best. You're not going to lose five years of wear and tear and whatnot. You're going to bring yourself back you know, a different version of yourself from five years ago. The version of himself that got into the cage against Corey Sandhagen, again, a little over a year ago, but theoretically that's that's not outside the realm of possibility. And that guy would have probably been beaten, would have been beaten by Aljamain Sterling. Um not as decisively as this one, but I still think Sterling would have won. What does... So, one, I, I seriously question the ethics of the people involved here who sent him out there. I, I would love... Like, again, the reasonable best version of TJ Dillashaw does not have a great shot at beating... Aljamain Sterling, but what'd you say? Like, if the best reasonable version of TJ Dillashaw at 36 fought the same version of Aljamain Sterling that showed up, how many times would those two have to fight before you'd get a TJ Dillashaw win? And I know this is a weird way to kind of conceptualize this, but when you say, like, what are the odds, right? Like, how many times in theory would we have to do this before to get a certain result? What would you have to fight? Have them fight ten times for that version of TJ to beat this version of Sterling? Twenty? Uh, I don't know. It, it somewhere in the ten to twenty range seems about right to me. That's enough iterations to kind of have some randomness tick over. That it, those are bad odds. Just for the record. Those are bad odds. But, and some of that, some of what I'm saying about here is like pure hindsight, which is kind of how we have to talk about these things. But in pure hindsight, with essentially perfect knowledge here, that strikes me as about accurate. Like, he's a 1 in 20-ish shot at beating this version of Sterling. Not great. Not great at all. But, that's also not... I hate to phrase it this way. That's also, like, 
you've seen MMA in particular, like that kind of odd will pay out more often than one in 20 in reality. So I can kind of see the twisted logic here. What are the odds of TJ Dillashaw with a shoulder this compromised beating that version of Aljamain Sterling? How many times, again, if you want to conceptualize it like this, feel free to. How many times would they have to fight before TJ Dillashaw got a win? Now, you can't say never, because over an infinite timeline, every possibility will play out, right? But if I'm trying to make this case that you can't strictly say never because of just how many iterations we could theoretically go through, right? We get to the point where it is what's referred to as a statistical impossibility. And I forget the exact threshold for statistical impossibility. And it kind of changes depending on the context you're dealing with, but like a statistical impossibility in um, one sporting context is not the same as a statistical impossibility in another sporting context or in different like mathematical uh, systems. So, But long and the short of that, how many times do you think you would have to have run this fight, run this simulation, or what have you, before you got a TJ Dillashaw win. If you answered anything less than, like, eight or nine figures, you're dreaming. And if we're talking one in a million or more, and given how many I just, how many numbers I just said, again, because a million would be seven, if those are the odds, what you have is a, a statistical impossibility. And at that point, I don't mind saying you sent TJ Dillashaw out there with no chance of winning. None. You're, you've got a Hail Mary head kick right off the bat, and that's it. You have no chance. You have no realistic chance at beating this guy. So why are we doing this? I mean, that. why are we doing this? What was the purpose of this fight? And before we knew about the injury, you know, okay, fine. Like, if TJ's not injured, we can revisit. We can kind of recon, we can recontextualize some of the discussion here. But he is, and he was. So I'm asking after the fact. What was the purpose of this? And I mean that. Did TJ Dillashaw have a shot at winning? No. He did not. All he did was incur physical trauma. That's all he did here. All he did was damage that shoulder even worse, and he did damage it worse, and take punches and elbows to the face for six minutes and change. Seven and change? And exactly was it in a second. Hang on. Uh, okay, sorry. 3.44. So, okay, eight minutes. Call it seven, because I don't imagine he was getting hit literally every minute, but for the sake of art, seven minutes. All he did was take seven minutes of physical abuse, further damage to a compromised joint, for... with no chance of victory. I 
I try not to swear on this show. I, I try very hard to kind of guard my language in general, and I've been trying very difficult not to swear at all recently. In the last like few years, I've been trying to cut back. So understand that I'm. I'm I apologize if I'm going to offend anyone with this. But in all sincerity, what the hell are we doing here? I I absolutely mean that. What was the purpose of this? Oh, and by the way, by the way, I don't know what kind of pre-fight medical screening went into this. I don't know who... Um, they... Uh, apparently, there's, uh, there's allegedly a... Uh, some kind of governing body or sanctioning body over the UAE as it pertains to MMA. I got a hunch that's purely boilerplate and the UFC is essentially self-regulating. Uh, that's my that's my read on this. You know, they get to use the rules that they prefer to use. Um, they, you know, and all, all that kind of jazz. So I'm going, but I'm going to ask this again. What good are the pre-fight medical screenings? I mean this. What was it, two weeks ago, we had Alir Latifi come in and say, yeah, I fought this, uh, this fight with a bad staph infection in my leg. Like, right after he got done fighting was uh, the Alexio Olenek fight. Right? Pretty sure. He's like, yeah, no, my left leg's swollen. I've got a fever. I've got staph. Just spread. That's a highly contagious bacterium. Staph infections are not a joke. Yeah, I'll spread it around the canvas. Spread it all over the guy I'm fighting. Medical screening. Didn't pick up that. They they never seem to detect staff. I mean, I remember, um, uh, it was Matt Hamill and Keith Jardine. And there's just, it was Hamill. That was the fight. I'm pretty sure it was Hamill we're discussing here. Just this open wound on his back from the staph infection. Like, just there, on his back. You can see it. Oh, yeah, when Kevin Lee said, yeah, I've got this... Uh, when, I mean, Joe Rogan, when Kevin Lee fought um, Tony Ferguson. Like, just, yeah, that giant bump on his chest and Joe Rogan, like, I think that's a staph infection. Commentary is like, no, it can't be that, you know, medical screenings. And then after the fact, he asks him about it, like, yeah, it's a staph infection. I just kind of put some makeup on it and hoped the, they wouldn't notice the discoloration. Of what value are these pre-fight medical screenings if we're not catching a guy whose shoulder is falling out of the socket when he sneezes or staph infections? What value do you serve? Or, you know, fighters come in, and this was very prominent uh, back in the older days. Fighters would come in with knee injuries and whatnot that they sustained in training. But because they didn't have health insurance, they would wait until they fought, then disclose the knee injury, claim they got it during the fight, and then uh, the... Any injuries like incurred during the fight fall on are paid uh, medical expenses are paid by the uh, governing bodies. So they used to happen all the time. You, you you people can't 
Look, certain knee injuries, I get those, can be very hard to detect, especially if you... Any illness. Look, look pretty much anything is very difficult to detect if you have a non-cooperative patient, if you're a doctor, right? Like, medical science, unless we get real invasive, is somewhat limited to, again, kind of like how much one party chooses to be helpful in the process of diagnoses. Uh, I mean, because they're not going... Look, they're not going to MRI every fighter's knee and shoulder before every fight. That's ridiculous. And I, I do understand that. Like, MRIs are time-consuming and expensive and yada, yada, yada. But... If these medical screenings aren't able to detect major injuries or contagious diseases, I'm just, I'm seriously out here going, why are we bothering? Like, I can count on one hand the number of times I can, I can remember a fighter being denied a denied a fight because of something in the pre-fight medical screening like the only time i remember offhand i know it's happened more than once but the only one i ever remember was uh tiago alves he was fighting supposed to fight on uh, i believe it was a card in boston and there was some issue with a brain scan and he i mean he got it fixed he went up fighting again or he just went to another commission that didn't care but it just it doesn't happen what Again, of, like, what value are you if you're not actually serving your alleged function? And I saw this on Twitter, and I'm going to bring it up here as well, because I had, I had not considered this, but think for a moment. Everyone in TJ's camp, everyone would have known about this injury. If you told me, like, like, if I knew this, okay, if I knew before the fight that TJ Dillashaw is dealing with this serious a shoulder injury, guess what I'm doing? I'm betting everything I have on Aljamain Sterling winning that fight. Sterling was the favorite, but the odds were close enough to make a lot of money betting on the favorite. I told you. In practical terms, TJ Dillashaw had no shot at winning this fight. Anyone who knew of this injury knew he had no shot at winning this fight. So you bet against him. Because he's not going to win. And yeah, he's... Again, Sterling's the favorite, but he was... What was he? 2-1? to one? A 2-1 to one favorite? That's... You can easily turn a significant profit on odds that are that close, believe it or not. Like you you got to get a little bit higher up in the odds before it stops being really worth your time to bet on favorites in, a, in any kind of real capacity. At like minus 210 or whatever he was, that's... that's you're just basic, all you're doing basically is getting a really good percentage ROI. Like that that's not a that's not a gamble. 
if you know about that injury. That's not a gamble at all. There's no ambiguity here. He's going to lose that fight. Ugh. I, I just, again, this was a farce. This was a total farce. You held up a great division. You had this guy potentially ruin his quality of life more than, more so than regular fighting does anyway. Just ground that shoulder into powder. Every bit of connective tissue there is going to be compromised. If it's falling out that easily and that consistently, every bit of connective tissue, every tendon, every ligament is going to be screwed. Your cartilage might be terribly screwed up. You might have had a lot of bone on bone going on there. Just terrible. And you sent him out there to get more head trauma. You got hit in the head a fair bit. How many times did he get hit in the head specifically? Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up because it's going to amuse me and or depress me. Find the right wrong website clicked on. Um. Okay. Look at this. Look at this fight. Okay, Sterling landed a total of 77 significant strikes. Um, sorry, 72 significant strikes, 148 total, 77% of which were to the head. You are welcome to do the math on that. That's how many times he got hit in the head. And for nothing. How many strikes did TJ land this entire stupid fight? They're crediting him with eight significant, 13 total. That's generous. That's actually generous. This was a farce. It's the only way I can describe it. You'd like to think that Dillashaw would have been smart enough about his health to not do this, but fighters are delusionally optimistic. You'd like to think that his corner would have had some degree of his, his team would have had some degree of his health and safety and quality of life in mind, but they're not incentivized to do so. You'd like to think that a sanctioning body, which allegedly exists in this instance, would have been willing and able to intervene in some capacity on behalf of the fighter and said fighter's quality of life and realistic competitive chances of winning. And how do we justify this ethically? I mean that and it's going to play into something else I'm going to talk about later, but. Part of what we do in this, part of the reason we tolerate combat sports, and I say tolerate on a societal level, is the notion that this is an, an exhibition of skill, right? That so-and-so has a legitimate chance at winning, that so-and-so uh, is expressing skill and whatnot, and you know, we don't do the stupidity of feeding someone to the lions, 
Now, we might as well have done that. I mean, granted, that would have killed Mr. Dillashaw, and that's not what I'm implying here, but if all we're talking about is the competitive element of this, one-armed TJ Dillashaw against Aljamain Sterling had about as much chance of winning that fight as he would fighting off a big cat. Just say none. So what are we doing? So what are we doing here? And I don't like having to ask that question. I don't ask it very often. But this is the position I now find myself in. This is a position we all find ourselves in. You know, the referee was told before the fight he's been having issues with his shoulder falling out. What's that doctor doing not letting him back out for the second round? Again, what are we doing here? What are we doing? Everything that allows us to enjoy this sport was absent from this fight. And I don't just mean the government in some kind of like nebulous sense. Like Government regulation of sport or combat sport in particular is a necessity because it's meant to be a, representati- a representation of what we all collectively tolerate and allow and think is necessary ethically for this kind of thing to happen. And if you want my sort of like generalized world leanings, I'm more a small government kind of guy as a general rule, but that doesn't mean no government. And an examination of what is allowable for combat sports is does not seem unreasonable to me. We can talk about individual specifications all we want, and those should be discussed, but the fundamental notion that this is something that needs to be examined and regulated by the authority that we kind of look to for the organization of our society is not does not seem unfair to me and it's kind of a and it can be a reflection of your society as well you know hey how did the uh you know the the roman gladiatorial games were sanctioned by the government that says a lot about them just like what we allow says a lot about us or do we want do we like what this says about us i don't like what it says about me Frankly, I don't like what it says about you. I don't even like T.J. Dillashaw as a general rule. No, this is not, oh, he's a cheater. Dude got popped. Dude paid his time. If that's your gripe that you're still holding over his head, I don't know what to tell you. But please, I don't know, grow up. I didn't like this fight for reasons that had nothing to do with the fact that T.J. Dillashaw got popped for PEDs. Everyone in the UFC. I mean that. Every one of them. Every single one of them has been or is on. Make your peace with it. Every sport you're watching, by by the way, hockey, football, baseball, basketball, don't care. I don't care one iota. 
Guarantee you they're on something. Guarantee it. Make your peace with it. Don't just don't be ignorant about it. Heck, have you seen the release to the Olympics? Like one of my favorite jokes about this. This was from uh, this might have been from the 30 for 30 series that was on uh, Ben Johnson, the Canadian sprinter, whose gold medal was taken away because he failed a drug test. I think near the end of that, they kind of got into you know what constitutes performance enhancing and whatnot. One of the guys says, you know, on a lark. I kind of took the samples from that year. Because they maintain these samples for long periods of time. They're stored. And ran them through modern testing facilities. And he said nothing more than, I decided against that because, you know, the past is the past. Let that sink in for just a minute or two, will you? The Olympics, the height of... You know, we test and blah, 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 blah. To say, even setting aside, like, the the Rusada scandal, the Russian doping scandal. Set that aside. Even though, it's emblo- even though it is very symptomatic and emblematic of what's going on here. All of them. Every single one of them. So I don't care that TJ failed a drug test. I don't like it. And I am of the opinion that if you agree to fight under a set condition under a set of conditions, you should abide by that. How I think the world should work. You agree to fight on X date at X weight, not failing drug tests. You should do so. My opinion. Should the fighters have more of a say in that than they do? Million percent. They are dictated to. They are not consulted. I don't like that. But my issue is not. Oh, TJ's a cheater. Yeah, don't care. Didn't like the fight. I didn't think he won his last one. I didn't like... Again, I, I didn't like the fight. Now find out this was a... Come to find out this was a waste of my time and money. A waste of your time and money. A waste of Aljamain Sterling's time and money. I mean, he's going to get paid for it, but what a waste of his time and talent. And a active detriment to TJ Dillashaw's time and quality of life. So... What are we doing, and who benefited? Sterling got a paycheck. Technically, TJ got a paycheck, but that ain't going to... He did not get paid what it's going to cost him in time and surgery and rehab. I I would guarantee it. I don't know what they make, more or less. Uh, Not worth it. The only one who benefited here is the UFC from whatever extra buys and monetary value they were able to squeeze out of the blood that was spilled. And look, I, I will defend, I've defended the UFC when I think they're unfairly criticized. But they're literally the only ones who benefit from this in a real capacity. Other than that, this, this was a farce. That's all this was. A total farce. Shame on everyone involved. That led to this, that led to this happening. Never should have happened. This fight should not have happened. That's not even me saying I thought TJ should have lost his last fight. No, this fight under these circumstances should not have happened. Um, again, post-fight Sterling made jokes about, made like bad joke names. Sterling is, he's an enthusiastic fellow, but he's not... Um, 
and I don't mean this as an insult. This is an observation about skills, right? He's not quick-witted. Um, when he was giving out his, like, bad names based on fighters' last names or whatnot, like, those are rehearsed. And they're painfully, obviously rehearsed. Um, if... This relates to the fight we're going to have to talk about next. Here's my hunch about this. If, big if, Henry Cejudo is serious about trying to make some kind of a comeback for another fight. Big if. If he wants this title shot, it's probably his. Your number one contender in Piotr Jan lost a very controversial decision. Talk about that in a minute. And the guy that beat him, if they, look, they might try to do O'Malley. I don't think he should take this fight. That fight would go so badly for him. Well, I'll get into why, I'll get into why when I talk about O'Malley and Jan. But for the moment, suffice to say, stylistically, I think that is a very bad matchup for him. And I think he needs more seasoning and he needs more time to work on the issues as they relate to Aljamain Sterling specifically. Because if he gets run over by Sterling, and he very well might if they made that fight. If that fight is next for both guys, A, I'm picking Sterling. B, that might go very, very one way. Uh, He's... (laughs) And so they might want to slow play that again because you lose that first title shot badly, you might not get another one. Might. You you might want to be careful with that. That's all I'm saying about that um, for the moment. So if if that's somewhat out of play, I mean, who else are we looking at? He already beat Corey Sandhagen in the first round via submission. Like, that wasn't that wasn't a close fight. It was a very decisive fight, if nothing else. It was definitive. Um, you've got Marlon Vera out there, who just got a pretty significant win, but... That's a heck... That would... I think on a meritocratic standpoint, and on, and on a what interests me the most... I think it is Vera, actually. But that's a possibility, but that might not work out. They Vera might need one more. This The division is just in kind of a general state where if Cejudo wanted to kind of parachute into a title shot, it's not unreasonable. So that's something we have to keep an eye on. Uh, I don't know exactly. Again, I don't know exactly what's going to be next for the bantamweight title. There's a few things still in flux, but don't be shocked if Cejudo gets that one if he's serious about making a comeback. Um, as for Dillashaw, I expected him to retire. To be candid, after this fight, um, he didn't, and. But he'll be 37 in February. He's going to, so he's not going to, he's not going to fight until he's going to be almost 38. 
He's going to be out for a while because of this. So, again, let's not mince words there. He's going to be out for a while. That age at bantamweight, I'd be shocked if he has three more fights in him in the UFC. I'd be shocked. Especially given his injuries. Especially given his injuries. He might get two more. Um, one more seems like a certainty unless there's some other injury that really messes him up between fights, which could happen. But one more to try and go out on a, even if he doesn't win, to go out on a fight that was not a, that was not this. Doesn't seem wholly unreasonable. Um, but the end is very, very near for him. Uh, very near. Alright, um, next up. It's taken a while. Sorry, guys. We told you we had a lot to talk about. Should accelerate a little bit after this. Bantamweights. Sean O'Malley defeats Piotr Jan via split decision, 29-28. Two for O'Malley, one for Jan. All right. The word robbery got thrown around here, and... I've thought about this. In the immediate aftermath, I was very upset at this decision. I, I, be very clear with what I'm about to say. I still think it's wrong. I still think the wrong guy won. Caveat. So, dot, dot, dot. However, going back over it, Understanding the criteria being used, there is a case to be made. Now, let me stress this. I don't agree. I get in in real time, I gave you on all three rounds. The third on some reflection. Some you know, bits of rewatch. I haven't been able to rewatch the whole thing yet. But rewatching parts of it that I've been able to. I'm not sure that he won the third. I'm, I'm very not sure that he won the third. I still think you can make the argument for Jan, but... O'Malley's bigger moments in that were bigger than I gave them credit for in real time. So, let me acknowledge that. I still don't give O'Malley the first. And this seems to be the swing round. I'm not saying you can't argue for O'Malley. I'm just saying I don't find the argument compelling. A couple of things that I that need to be brought up here. I'm going to talk about the fight itself separately from the decision and kind of what's gone into the scoring and whatnot. Because I, I need to separate those two for the sake of this. Here's some of the problems that have come up around this. And let me start with the big one. The people going so-and-so landed X significant strikes versus X versus Y from the other guy, therefore they won. This is a... You don't want to go down this road. Okay? Trust me on this. You don't want to go down this road. There's a mountain of problems with trying to use this to justify scoring. Not the least of which is as follows. All right. One. The judges, the people who matter, do not have access to this information. 
the again the statistical data that the UFC spouts on the on the broadcast judges none of it none of it so it doesn't matter has no effect on the fact that there is a numerical disparity in and of itself does not reflect on the outcome of the fight again in and of itself does not matter the broadcast numbers are frequently wrong if you want to have fun with this one if you think i'm lying go back rewatch max holloway alexander volkanovsky 2 okay they will talk about the numbers on that broadcast and they will give you the numbers that they have they give you the caveat unofficial do you know what unofficial means in this case it means that these these are this is data being generated in real time that is faulty. Compare the numbers being said on the broadcast to the after the fact numbers and they do not line up. Why? Because the after the fact numbers we arrive at after the people who tabulate this stuff go over the rounds more carefully. And they, the after-the-fact stuff is more accurate. So, now this is not to say that the... Which is also to say, even in those instances, I don't always agree with them because I disagree with what sometimes they consider landed. Which now gets into the definitions that we have to use. Commentary, look, the UFC commentary's relationship with statistical data as it pertains to fighting is weird. Uh, but there's a comment that's brought up on occasion. What is a significant strike? Well, that matters. What is an insignificant strike? The distinction matters. How many insignificant strikes equal a significant strike if we're going down this road? Because this is the direction we, we're going here, if you want to argue this point. If you want to hang your hat on so-and-so said, this website says, O'Malley landed X, Jan landed X minus whatever, ergo O'Malley wins. If this is the direction we want to go down, these are the discussions we're going to have to have. And you don't want to have these discussions. And I know you don't want to have these discussions, but if, but again, this is what we're going to have to do if we want to do this. So what's significant? What's insignificant? How many significant, how many insignificant equals significant? What constitutes landed? Here's a fun one for you in that particular respect. Um, Jose Aldo versus, was it Moicano? I don't think it was Moicano, it was, I think it was a bantamweight fight. Give me just a second here. because uh, he fought a guy who's a notorious calf kicker. Was it Font? Was Munoz or Font? Maybe even in both. Both those gentlemen like to kick the leg, and they're good at kicking the leg. Jose Aldo shut that down. 
But if you look at the statistical analysis, they credit Aldo's opponent with landing more leg kicks than they did. Why? What constitutes landed? This matters if we're going to have this discussion. So O'Malley landed more strikes, okay? What's landed? Is landed any contact being made? Is landed clean contact being made? Does it matter if it's blocked? Is it partially blocked? Again, you don't want to get into this minutia. I don't blame you. It's boring and pedantic and stupid. But here we are. How about control time? Because Jan had that in every round. How much control time overrides significant any number of significant strikes? You don't know. Because... Again, because the criteria is different, because of how the criteria is laid out. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. If you want to hang your hat on these discussions, this is what we have to get into. So please stop trying to backfill this. Stop trying to backfill your argument with data that was not relevant in the way you think it was relevant in real time. Other problem with this, and this is becoming more of a problem, I think. Um, I heard more than one person reference this when I was looking at some of the discussion around this fight, in particular after the fact. The revised scoring criteria that we use, that is being used right now, it's not the same as it used to be. And please feel free to read the scoring criteria. This is publicly available information. It it makes most grappling meaningless. I'm going to stress this for a second. Not all, most. If you're grappling does not lead to serious positional advantage, and I mean serious, and you can't attack from there, you might as well not, it, because it means almost nothing. We have been, and I think what kills me about this personally is how wildly inconsistent this is. If the same judges that scored that we're judging, and I brought this fight up earlier, um, Dillashaw and Sandhagen were scoring this fight, Jan wins. Assuming they're consistent with their application of the criteria, Jan would win this fight. But we are not consistent, are we? No, we are not. And I think that's I think that's a problem. I now look. I was around when lay and pray was a scourge on the sport. I am not saying that a correction was not required from that point in time. It was. It desperately was. I am saying I think we have overcorrected to the point where most grappling at this point doesn't hold any value. How can you say that after the first round of Mikashev and Oliveira? 
Oliveira didn't do enough on the feet to to potentially mitigate Makashev's control time. Ask yourself this, though. If in the first round, Oliveira had landed, had rocked Makashev, and then got taken down and controlled for the same amount of time with the same amount of effect that Makashev did, would that have won him the round? And again, I'm not saying that there. I'm not saying that the impact on the fight shouldn't be maybe even the most important criteria. I am saying we have started to equate that with damage, especially cosmetic damage, in a method that seems to actively disincentivize fighters from using an entire skill set. Unless you're just ungodly oppressive. And I think that needs to be addressed. Uh, here's another reason I think people are annoyed by the outcome of this fight. Let me, ask, let me put it to you this way. Because if we score round by round, I can see the argument for O'Malley. I've come around to... I can see the argument now. I couldn't originally. I can't now. I can see the argument. I I really don't agree. But this isn't the scoring equivalent of Flat Earth. All right? But as maybe we should ask ourselves instead, as a thought experiment, if we use the other, if we use a different scoring system, even if we apply the same criteria, if we judge the fight as a whole instead of round by round, who won? Because that... I will, again, I'll admit, round by round, this fight could be closer than I originally thought. If you judge this fight as a whole, it is not close. Doesn't mean it wasn't a competitive fight, it was. But if you judge this fight as a whole, Jan wins. And it should not be that close, scoring-wise. And I think that sticks in a lot of people's craws. Um, There were no... Media scores for O'Malley. I mean, it's, I mean, straight up none. I have not seen any. Um, I haven't seen too much on Twitter in favor of O'Malley here. If you look at the body language of O'Malley and his cornermen after the fight, that is the posture of the defeated. I was shocked when they said this was split to say nothing of O'Malley winning. Now, I've, again, I've come down a little bit off of my angry high horse about this. But I think if you're a fighter, you need to serious, you we need to be very cognizant of the current scoring criteria, what it incentivizes, and whether or not it's going in the direction that we necessarily think it should. Because for a while it was too far the other way. I was there for that. I was there for those discussions. I was there for the lay and pray era, and it sucked. Not defending it. I'm saying... We adjusted, needed adjustment, 
we might have overcorrected. In fact, I'm pretty sure we overcorrected. So, could probably do with another correction back towards something that is more ideal. All right. With being somewhat, dis with, be with very much disagreeing with that decision, and I mean very much disagreeing, let us move on to the fight itself. And you know what? Sean O'Malley, setting aside that I thought he lost. If we just judge his performance, that dude performed admirably. Ask yourself this question. Who had more success against Piotr Jan? Corey Sandhagen over 25 minutes or Sean O'Malley over 15? I'm not saying Jan and Sandhagen wasn't a, you know, a fairly competitive fight. It was. But who had more success against Jan? Sean O'Malley did. O'Malley's got very straight punching in ways that I think a lot of people um, don't appreciate. He's got a very good front kick, actually, um, that showed up here a lot. He's got a good front kick. Um, his wrestling defense is still a problem. Um, his ability to get up is still kind of a problem. I mean... When I say when I said earlier, if I'm Sean O'Malley coming off of this fight, do I do I want to fight Aljamain Sterling next? My answer is no. Look at all the times Piotr Jan had O'Malley's back here. Now imagine instead of Jan, it's Aljamain Sterling, and tell me how much dif how differently this fight goes. Um, but both men did a lot of stance switching. Uh, Again, there were some nicely timed punches from O'Malley. He landed a pretty good head kick in the third. Nice knee uh, at one point as well. He had more success against Jan in a meaningful way than pretty much anyone else. So, serious credit to him. This was a an enormous step up in competition for him, and he proved he can hang with the best in this division. I give him all the credit in the world for that. There's a lot of guys, me included in some cases, who slept on this guy because he wasn't fighting, because he went from fighting a much lower rank of a, rank of opponent to one of the very best. He proved he can hang with the very best. Even if you think he lost, and I do, he was a more than worthy adversary for someone at the top of the division and much as O'Malley might annoy you, me, and everybody else, that needs to be reckoned with. Um, that man is one of the better bantamweights in the world. And that needs to be said out loud. Um, if you're Jan, you might have to retool some stuff. You know, you've lost two fights now that you had a case for winning on the scorecards. The Sterling fight, again, I've still kind of scored it for him, but I've, I'm, like, the argument that he won that fight is not as strong as the argument that he won this fight. Um, but you've had those, you've had a couple of those fights now. You might have to adjust some stuff. 
Because he's still a very, very good fighter. But... Uh, you know, there's, there's, I mean, I almost don't want to hold this one against him because, like I said, I've not seen anyone who scored this for O'Malley. Even the people kind of defending the decision are not saying they think O'Malley won so much as, here's how we arrived at where we arrived at, even if I disagree. Um, he might have to rework a few things. I mean, that guy has had some, in some cases, some... Dude, how much different would the bantamweight landscape be if he had not need Aljamain Sterling in the head? Think about that. He was winning that fight handily by that point. If he doesn't throw that knee, he might either get a stoppage with his hands in that same round or in the fifth or win a decision. Doesn't have to fight Aljamain Sterling again because he won a clear decision. Moves on to somebody else. But I mean, that's that's not quite Chris Weidman throwing a wheel throwing the wheel kick at Luke Rockhold. Not quite that, but it's not far off. Like that guy's seriously and negatively adjusted the trajectory of his career in ways that look again. The scoring in this fight is absolutely out of his hands, but the fact that he's in this position at all. All traces back to a decision he made. So I don't know what's next for him. Um, he's still one of the best bantamweights in the world, I think. But he he really needs to sort some stuff out. Uh, again, if I'm O'Malley, I if you get a shot at Sterling next and you choose to take it, if you get blown out of the water, understand you're not getting another one. Just understand that. So it might behoove him to slow play this a little bit. Um, and I don't know what's next for Jan. This was your fight of the night. And again, setting aside the decision, it was a good fight. It was a fun fight. These two guys hurt each other more than once. Um, here's the other thing if I'm O'Malley. I want a five-round fight before my title shot. Because he was um, he was struggling in the third round here. Like, you can argue he won it. In fact, most people seem to think so. And fair enough, but if you're making that argument, you're making your argument on the first two minutes of that round, not the last three. And look at how he was at the end of that third round. Um, I think he needs to test his cardio in a five-round fight. At least prepare for a five-round fight before... He has to fight for the belt, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so that was it. That dude, that decision deflated the rest of this card. It really did. Um, we It wound up leading to a co-main event that was a giant letdown and, again, a farce. And then a main event that was important and certainly wasn't, again, certainly wasn't a bad fight, but... Um, it was not exactly fireworks. So, uh, moving on. Let's see. Benil Daryush defeats Mateusz Gamrot for unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Good fight. Good fight. Some great wrestling exchanges. Daryush did a good job after the first round stopping a lot of takedowns. Oregon scrambling with Gamrot. 
outlanding him on the feet, landed some good body kicks, dropped Gamrot hard with a left hand in the third. Gamrot's got a chin on him, man, because he bounced up from getting dropped. Um, Gamrot's wrestling is the majority of his offense. I think he needs something to help bring that to life. Because when he's you know wrestling and grappling, he's very good. I mean, very good. But he needs some components to kind of help him out along the way. Because once he stopped being able to force those exchanges with Darius and he couldn't overwhelm him early... Darius kind of had his way. Um, get good fight. This is like eight or nine in a row for Darius, who probably still has to win one more fight before he gets a title shot, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, fun fight. If if your fight of the night wasn't O'Malley and Yon, it was Darius and Garmon. It was a good fight. Um, catchweight fight because Caitlin Chukagian missed weight. Manon Fjord defeats Caitlin Chukagian via unanimous decision. 29-28 across the boards. Um, I'm going to quote something I saw on Twitter. Is it Sean Elshadi I saw him post this, or Sean Sheehan? I think it was Sheehan. Um, French Chukagian beat Chukagian by Chukagian decision. Yeah. That was your main card. Uh, that's for the prelims. Bilal Muhammad defeated Sean Brady via TKO. Uh, punch, standing TKO punches against the fence, 447 of the second. I'm spend a little bit of time here. The rest of this will be faster. Um, Sean Brady's a good grappler, but his takedowns need work, and you'd like to think that if you get outstruck by Michael Chiesa, and he did, you would take that lesson and learn from it and try to improve coming into a fight with Bilal Muhammad, and apparently not so much. He hit, he hit Muhammad several times in the first round, but either didn't have enough power behind it, or, you know, Muhammad's got a good chin. It just wasn't enough to deter Muhammad's pressure. Anytime he tried to tie up, Muhammad immediately shut that down. And then just started pot-shotting him, because Brady's defense is not good. Um, I just, for the record. I'm going to get into the rest of these in more detail in a second, but for the record. This entire card featured a whopping two TKO finishes and a grand total of four finishes in all. And Bilal Muhammad got one of them. When was Muhammad's last TKO win before this? Just my own morbid curiosity. Um, his last finish before this was against Takashi Sato in 2019. His last TKO was Augusto Montano in 2016. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to do the Brady was overrated thing. Okay, I'm not going to say that about the guy. I am going to say he did not take the appropriate lessons from his last fight. Hopefully he takes them from this one. Uh, Muhammad hasn't lost since he fought Jeff Neal in 19. He's on a, what, nine-fight unbeaten streak? Yeah, four wins, the no contest with Edwards, and then four more wins. Um, he's probably still on the outside looking in for a title shot because of the state of that division. You're looking at an Usman Edwards rematch. If he's trying to make Colby Covington versus Kamzat Shamaya for presumably the same card. he's probably He probably needs one more. I don't know who he's going to fight for it. 
but he that's just kind of the way this shakes out. He probably needs one more. Um, I think after the fight, he said he'd fight Kamzat Shemaev at whatever Shemaev wanted to weigh in at, which was actually kind of funny. But he, I think he does need one more, but he's you know, finally got a stoppage. Good for him. He's a tough guy to beat, man. He might not be the most exciting fighter, and for a while, this was the fight of the night, and that's a damning statement on both this fight and the rest of the card. But he's hard to beat. That means a lot. That is, a, that is not an easy guy to beat. All right, uh, moving on. Kyle Bahalio defeated Mahmoud Muradov via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Um, good stuff from Bahalio here. Just generally better wrestling. Um, but this was a this was a fun little fight. It wasn't great, but it was decent enough. Nikita Krylov defeated Volkan Uzdemir via unanimous decision, 130-27, These two had a good 30 seconds or so to start the fight. Then Uzdemir slowed down, and Krylov took over and just kind of won it via traditional light heavyweight decision. Welterweights Abubakar Nurmagomedov defeated Gadzi Omargadziev via unanimous decision, 229-28-130-27. A lot of lay in prayer. This fight sucked. Middleweights Armin Petrosian defeated AJ Dobson via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Mostly kickboxing. Just a generally higher output from Petrosian. Um, Dobson never seemed to get out of second gear, and Petrosian, even if he coasted in third, that was enough to win the fight. Flyweights, Mohamed Makayev defeated Malcolm Gordon via armbar, 426 of the third. Um, we need to talk about Makayev for a second here. Makayev is a bright prospect. Um, he's a good wrestler and a pretty good grappler overall. There's a few things that have started to emerge, though. Patterns. Holes that need to be filled in, if you will. Um, his striking on the feet is not good. It's not... Uh, I shouldn't say not good. It's passable, but it's not... It's nothing to write home about. His cardio might be an issue. He slowed down in this fight pretty visibly. In fact, he was losing the third round before that submission. So he might not he might not start the fight at a pace he can sustain. Um, something to pay attention to. Here's the other thing. His ground and pound is either non-existent or anemic. Now... I mean, in the third round, hang on, there was a fun little statistic about this fight, actually. If we go round by round, Makayev did not even attempt a single strike. Um, in the second round, he was just... 9 of 14, first round, 12 of 16. Uh, What's this percentage? There was some fight here. Oh, yeah, the... Um, I think it was the Chukagian and Fior fight, where they were both landing, like, less than 30% of their strikes thrown. Like, if you're landing less than one out of every three strikes you throw, you got a problem. But, so, good news for Makayev. He's young. He's got some very real tools. 
but you can't be blind to some of these issues. He's got to he's got to deal with adding ground and pound. He's got to deal with some of his cardio, and he's got to deal with what he does on the feet. He did the thing on the feet that's a big tell, believe it or not. If somebody looks like they're a little bit fatigued, watch for them to throw something stupid and flashy because it'll get you to back off. He threw a wheel kick, I think, in the second round that just was a dead giveaway. Like, oh, you're tired. You know, that ain't good for you, man. Uh, Or, you know, you throw a jumping knee, you throw a Superman punch, you throw something ironically high energy... Uh, Despite you being tired because, I don't know, it feels good. Especially if it's something with a little bit of momentum behind it. You feel like you're not doing that much. You just let your body weight kind of carry you. I mean, Lord knows I've been guilty of this. I've done this. (laughs) Kind of how I know, it's one of the reasons I kind of know what to look for. But he's, uh, again, not poo-pooing the guy. His armbar from the back was nice. If you look at the technical application, it was pretty slick. And he's a very bright prospect. But let's not be blind to some of these issues that might develop. Let's let's keep a clear head about this. And again, he's young. I fully expect him to address some of these. But let's, again, we're just going to be honest, they need to be addressed. And kicking off the entire card, um, Carol Hosa defeated Lino Landsberg via majority decision. Two 29-27s, one 28-28. There was a point deduction in the second round due to an illegal knee. It's kind of where we got the 28-28, which I don't actually object to. I didn't. I was 29-27, but I can kind of see the argument. Um, not a whole lot here. Wasn't much of a fight. So, yeah, th- look. This card on paper, the main card in particular, was great. In practice, what a slog. I mean that. What a slog. Look at the first, like, six fights. So that's Hosa and Landsberg, Mikhaev and Gordon, Petrosian and Dobson, Nurmagomedov and Omar Gadziev, Krylov and Uzdemir, and Bahalyo and Muradov. Like, you got one finish. Not a guarantee of quality, but I'm just saying for, like, time investment. One finish. And a lot of those were not very interesting. Like, then you, I mean, you start the main card with like maybe the least interesting fight in you know, Fjord and Chukagian. Um, then your top three fights, man. Again, you have that weird decision in O'Malley and Jan. You have the the farce in your co-main event. Like, there was this was kind of a letdown. To be candid. For as good as this was on paper, this was a letdown. And if the UFC had any sort of ethical responsibility to its fans, there would be a partial refund given what happened in the co-main event. But they don't. And, frankly, there's a large degree of argument about whether or not, about what constitutes the responsibility of the UFC in this instance relative to its fan base. So, my opinion should be a partial refund. You bought this thing at least partially on Sterling and Dillashaw, and then you let a one-armed man go out there and fight. I... Give me five bucks back. 
You pay. I'm charging. You're charging me through the nose for these things behind an already existing paywall. At least pay for my ESPN Plus for the month. Just a thought. Uh, yeah. If you want my live round-by-round scoring and clips of finishes, at least from the prelims and whatnot, of which there were very few, that's uh, in the MMA Zone to 411mania.com. Please do give it a read if you're so inclined. Thank you to everyone who read along with my live coverage. I deeply appreciate all of you, as always. Boy, that took forever, but we had stuff to talk about, so the rest of this should hopefully be faster. We got a long one here, folks. If you are if you listen to me on a drive, well, uh, we'll be here for a little bit longer still. <laughs> All right. UFC on ESPN plus 71 this Saturday from the UFC Apex facility. Good main event here. Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen. Arnold Allen looked very good in his featherweight debut. I'm thinking Nathaniel Wood. I'm thinking Nathaniel Wood. They're both British. Uh, give me a sec. Allen... Okay. To be fair, Allen's looked really good, too. Um, the problem with Allen has been inactivity. Um, he's on a good winning streak. In fact, he's undefeated in the UFC. Uh, he's just, you know, one fight in 15, one fight in 16, one fight in 17, one fight in 18, two fights in 19, one in 20, one in 21, one this far in 2022 when he beat Dan Hooker. It was a good, it was a good win for him. So he's fighting twice in one calendar year. For just the second time in his UFC career? Yeah. Activity's been an issue for him. Um, Calvin Cater, I thought he I said it before, I thought he beat Josh Emmett in that last fight. Um it's a good fight. Again, this is a good fight. You know, Cater's on a th- his last three fights have been fight of the night. Well he got worked by Holloway, but he beat Giga Chikadze. Fair and square is a good fight. The Emmett fight was very good, like this is a good fight. Who thinks he's going to win? That's a tougher one. Allen looked really good when he fought Dan Hooker. But Dan Hooker's got some miles on him. And then again, so does Cater, which is kind of the point. This would be a big win for Allen, actually, if he pulls it off. Might be the best of his career given that Hooker was coming back to featherweight and Cater has kind of been a top... He's been an upper-tier guy for a, for several years at this point. Cater's tough to beat. He's real hard to beat, though. Unless you're like Max Holloway. He's hard to beat. Mm. Am I really going to lean... If this were three... Let me preface this. If this were three rounds, I would pick Allen, I think. Over five rounds. Over five rounds, I'm going to lean towards Cater. Um, I don't think Allen's fought for five rounds before. I know he hasn't in the UFC. I don't think he has outside the UFC either. I can't quite confirm that. Okay, he did win one. He won a title... That would have been a five-round fight. That fight uh, ended between rounds two and three. This was back in 2014. It's been a long time. Yeah, I'm going to lean towards Cater just a little bit. But, again, this is a good fight. Uh, The rest of this should go pretty quick. 
Uh, let's see. Max Griffin will fight Tim Means. That's not terrible. Am I going to lean towards Means here or not? Coming off that loss to Kevin Holland. That was, that was tough. But now Griffin's kind of found himself recently. He dropped that split decision to Neil Magny. That was a competitive fight. Yeah, I'm going to lean toward Means here, but that's a very slight lean, and that might be a bit of um, nostalgia talking for Means. Heavyweights, God help us. Jared Vandera and Waldo Cortez Acosta. Okay, even against... Where's Waldo over here? I don't think I can pick Jared Vandera and his four-fight losing streak. Yeah, I can't pick Vandera. Um, and if he loses this, he should be cut. Like, four in a row in the UFC is... You shouldn't be here if that if you can't win. What if you if you lose f five fights in a row in the UFC, you probably shouldn't be here. And especially against the level of opposition he's faced. Like, okay, I'm not saying that the guys he's fighting are scrubs. You know, Alexander Romanov might be the next big thing at heavyweight. Okay, Arlovsky. And Olenek and Sherman, though. Like, okay, beating Andre Arlovsky is, for some reason, very difficult. But you're losing to Alexi Olenek and Chase Sherman both this calendar year. In fact, he is 0-3 on the year. Um, yeah, I, I can't pick the guy to win. Middleweights, Josh Fremd and Trishan Gore. I'm not going to pick Gore. I don't think he should be in the UFC, and that's not a—that's not me saying I think he is the worst fighter in the world, but um, he's—he has less than ten fights. He might win still, but I don't think the UFC is the place for him to be at this point. So I'm gonna pick Fremd. Might be very wrong about that. The UFC might be matching him very carefully, so who knows? Um, light heavyweight, not actually a terrible fight here. Dustin Jacoby and Khalil Roundtree. Um, Jacoby actually hasn't lost in a while in MMA. He hasn't lost since 2015. Uh, knocked out Daun Jung earlier this year. Beat uh, Mihal Oleksajic before that. That was in March and July, respectively, of 2022. Roundtree's been very up and down, but his last two wins have been pretty good. He destroyed poor Modestus, Bukow Modestus Bukowskis' leg with a sidekick to it, um... What he did to Bukowskis is what everyone complains about, think, is what everyone thinks happens every time you sidekick someone's knee. No, turns out it's kind of hard to do that. Then he beat Carl Robertson. That was a brutal stoppage. He lost that first round pretty badly, though. I'm going to pick Jacoby here, but... Um, again, that, that's an iffy one uh, as far as picks go. You could easily pick the other direction. That fight could be fun. We get some fireworks out of that. As for the prelims, Phil Haas and Roman Delidze. What did Delidze do recently? Um, he's only lost once in the UFC. Last beat Kyle Dawkins. He knocked him out in the first round. He's back up from welterweight, I think, right? No, Star Poli was coming up to middleweight. Yeah, he's still at middleweight. He fought at light heavyweight for a while and then cut to middleweight. He is shredded at middleweight, by the way. 
Um, Hawes has only lost in the UFC to the action man himself, Chris Curtis. He beat the crap out of Duran Wynn that last fight. That was brutal. I'm going to pick Hawes. He might get wrestled to death by Delizze, though, just for the record. I already mentioned him once, but we've got two heavyweight fights on this card. God help us. Andre Arlovsky and Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Um, de Lima lost to Blagoy Ivanov his last time out. Oy. I'm going to pick Arlovsky. I mean, dude, Arlovsky's lost once. From from 2020, he, he won his first fight of 2020. Since then, he has lost once. That was to Tom Aspinall. I mean, his last two fights have been splits, but... Yeah, picking Arlovsky. <laughs> Middleweights. Uh, Junyong Park against Joseph Holmes. Probably Park. Park is... Is that the Iron Turtle? It is the Iron Turtle. Uh, I like that guy. He's kind of a fun fighter. He's just kind of a fun fighter. I mean, he's had some losses. He got knocked out by Gregory Rodriguez, man. I remember that. Robocop. But he's kind of fun. I, I think he'll win that one. Featherweights. Chase Hooper and Steve Garcia. Um, I don't think Steve Garcia should be in the UFC. I'm not sure Chase Hooper should be there either, but, um, yeah, going with Hooper. Why not? Flyweights. Clidson Rodriguez and Cody Durden. Probably Rodriguez. Then Bantamweights. Um, Christian Rodriguez. Rodriguez or Rodriguez? Hang on. I know Clidson is Brazilian. Stop that. You're being weird. Sorry, talking to my computer there. Um, yeah, I, I know Clidson is Brazilian, so... Um, we lose fights? We lose this and that hasn't been updated? This indicates that we've lost a few fights. Um, we were supposed to get Edson Barboza and Ilya Teporia here. That fight fell apart, I knew that. This is the Clidson Rodriguez fight is off. Uh... Okay, and we, the other fight we lost was Dracar Close and Marco Madsen. That would have been nice. Um, let me just... Okay, let me check instead of that source. Let's check. Why are you making this difficult? Let's check this source. Uh, okay, this would be Christian Rodriguez. He's now listed as fighting Garrett Armfield. All right, I'm not sure about that Rodriguez and Durden fight. I'll pick Rodriguez if the fight goes through, but in somewhat conflict. The UFC might not have updated yet, whereas um, Tapology seems to update a bit more consistently. Um, as far as Rodriguez and Armfield goes, uh, I think Rodriguez. Look at that one. I want to make sure I'm thinking if Rodriguez is who I'm thinking of. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with Rodriguez, but I think both of these guys have fought for the UFC before. 
Anywho. So, whatever this winds up looking like, um, might be getting Mark Madsen and Grant Dawson. It's actually not a bad fight. Not a bad fight at all. Um, Dawson hasn't lost in the UFC yet, and Madsen's got cardio issues. Um, probably Dawson. Yeah, yeah, Dawson in that fight, if it happens. All right, so Saturday, I will have coverage of that, so please do stop by, say hello. As always, I appreciate it. All right, news, news. All right, I didn't. I, I'm going to talk about this once, and this is the last I'm going to say about it. Um, but Dana White has a new venture. He will be promoting. What the hell did he call it? Oh, sorry. The Power Slap League. Dana White's PSL. <sighs> he got the Nevada State Athletic Commission to sanction this crap. If you've never seen slap fighting. It's the dumbest thing ever. If you want to know how dumb this is, one, I'm not going to call it a combat sport. There's no sporting element to it. Um, two guys stand across from each other, and they take turns slapping each other in the face like until one of them's unconscious. There's no defense. There's no skill. Well... Minimal skill. Here's the only skill involved in this. All right. One, how much is your head like Homer Simpson's? And two, sorry, I popped my brother with that line. And two, if you know the difference between a slap and a palm strike. I can teach you the difference between a slap and a palm strike in three minutes. You have to drill it a little bit before it becomes proper muscle memory, but that's it. You don't get to roll with the punch. You don't get to evade. All you do is you we stand across from each other, and I hit you, and you hit me, and eventually one of us falls over. We are, I swear, we are six weeks away from sanctioning that stupid game, since I referenced The Simpsons already, I may as well bring this chestnut up. If you'll recall the episode where they discussed the defective Simpson gene and it depresses Lisa, at the end of that, when Homer acquires a bunch of Simpsons from around the country to try and prove to Lisa that you're not destined to be a failure because you're a Simpson, all the Simpson men are failures because the defective gene is on the Y chromosome, the women are fine. At this gathering of the Simpsons, all the men decide it's a good idea to form a ring, stick two of them in the middle with pots on their heads, and they charge each other like rams. We're six weeks away from somebody like Dana White seeing that clip and going, you know what, I could make a buck. And I'm in a position to bribe some athletic commission enough to let me do it. 
This is a cheap, stupid, lurid spectacle. The first time you stumble across slap fighting, when a clip comes up on TikTok or a Facebook reel or a YouTube short, it's moderately like, oh, wow, look at that. You can't structure an event around this. And yet, Dana White's Power Slap League gets free promo airtime on UFC 280. They've already shot material. They already have branded merchandise. Do you think they were worried about the Athletic Commission sanctioning them? Uh, clearly not. Dana, uh, and and Dana, Dana White then has the audacity, the unmitigated gall to say, how dare you let, you know what? There was a time in the history of the UFC when Dana White was an integral component of its success. I will never take that away. He worked hard. He was at every event. Uh, he would talk to people. He would promote. Like Dana White's work ethic and his presence were fundamentally integral to the UFC growth. Million percent. Anyone saying otherwise is kind of an idiot. These days, you could replace Dana White with an angry AI that spouts soundboard clips that include goof, dumbass, moron, and scumbag. Like, he's basically a self-generated meme at this point. He is a parody of himself. And he's out here going, don't listen to, don't listen to scumbag media who didn't want us running unsafe events during the pandemic. How about we listen to the doctors then? Huh? Would you would you accept that? We look we look at all the material provided by the Association of Ringside Physicians about slap fighting? No. Of course you don't want us to look at that because it damns you. Ugh. I'm not going to discuss this any further on this show. I'm not. Look, here's how far down the here's how far down the pecking order in the combat spectacle sport adjacent area we are, okay? Congratulations, you are lower on the totem pole than bare knuckle boxing. You are so far down this proverbial totem pole that and I that Grabaka Hitman Kaposa, right? If you're not following that guy on Twitter and you're listening to me, follow him. Like, this guy watches everything. If he is the one saying slap fighting is unwatchable, you have lost the freaking plot. You have utterly lost it. That's the last I've got to say about this bit of ridiculousness. Until something really bad happens, then I'll laugh about it, and then then I'll yell about it. Like when somebody gets really hurt doing this, and they will, I'll say something. Until then, whatever. Um, bit of uh, there was an update to the UFC's code of conduct for fighters and cornermen and whatnot. They are not allowed to bet on UFC events anymore. Sure. Look, I understand this. I do, but one, they don't enforce the code of conduct at all. Two, uh, I get it. it makes sense. It does. You want to kind of avoid the impropriety of 
fixing and whatnot, but this is one other thing unilaterally forced and dictated to fighters and the and their adjacent people. You keep you're getting closer and closer. You, like the case to be made that current generation UFC fighters are independent contractors is almost non-existent. Uh, sadly, they're. The Uf no one's making that claim to the relevant people at the moment for a variety of reasons, but uh, yeah, so UFC fighters and coaches and cornermen are no longer allowed to bet on UFC events. This message brought to you by DraftKings. Ugh. The UFC fighters can still be sponsored by sports betting websites. But they cannot use them for UFC events. Uh, you. I said this about uh, Dana White's slap fighting thing on Twitter. I'm going to say it now because this brought it up. You cannot satirize combat sports. You can't do it. You cannot turn this into satire. It is living satire. Tragic satire, but satire nonetheless. All right, last bit of news. UFC 284 got another fight. A very important middleweight fight. I believe this will be the co-main event. Uh, this will be the Australia card. Uh, the UFC is looking to have Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa fight there. The general logic, again, if you listen to Khabib and whatnot after UFC 280, this would be the event that would host, theoretically, Makashev and Volkanovski. Whitaker and Cost is a very worthy co-main event. It's a very good fight. It's a very good fight for middleweight. So, I am fine with that. Any other news on fights this last week? Double-check a few of these. I already knew about that. Um, 283, don't think anything new has broken there. No, we already... I don't know if I mentioned this earlier or not. Let me mention it here now if I didn't. But 283 is going to be, um, potentially headlined or certainly featured prominently the flyweight title fight between Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. This is a historic meeting for the UFC. It's the first time that we've had a quadrilogy between fighters. So, I mean, that's the right fight to look for for those two. So, very much looking forward to that one. Um, for some reason, Shogun is fighting on that card. Please go away, Shogun. He's just sad at this point. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's it as far as fight announcements. All right, I have rambled. Let me check Twitter and see if anything crazy is broken while I've been recording this. If not, plugs, and we will get out of here for the week. Nope, nothing new. So, my podcast is still going to be shorter than the new Black Panther movie, even at its current runtime. Oh, the movie's going to be painful. Anywho, speaking of painful movies... My uh, movie reviews this week. This Monday, special Monday time, we will be reviewing on Damn You Hollywood, The Rock's latest action flick, Black Adam, as the DCEU desperately tries to keep itself afloat. So Mark and I will be talking that, the good, the bad, and the otherwise. 
Last week, we were supposed to review The Midnight Club, but for a variety of real-world reasons, that got postponed to this week, so this Wednesday. Myself, Alexis Haina, and Jason Teasley, in theory, will be reviewing that movie. Or movie, television show. It's on Netflix. So, forgive me. But it's kind of late. My brain's not all the way there. We'll be reviewing that, the good, the bad, and the otherwise. Um, I think that's all my podcasting for the week. Let me double check. 90% sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's all I got for podcasts. On the wrestling side of things, AEW's Dark Elevation on Wednesday, MLW if they release anything on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday. So if you're interested in any of that, the Wrestling Zone 411mania.com, I hang out over there on occasion. And of course, the UFC event on Saturday, and then we will be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN Plus 71, and let's double check this. Yes, we will be previewing UFC on ESPN Plus 72. Does this have a main event yet? Hang on. We were supposed to get Bryce Mitchell and Movsar Evloyev. Evloyev got injured. They were talking about maybe Taporia stepping in. That seems to have been switched out for something else, so we don't actually have a main event at the moment. Let's promote Neil Magny and Daniel Rodriguez. It's the best fight on the card. That is not a strong card. And what else do we got here? Yeah. I'm sticking with not strong. (laughs) So we'll preview it next week, whatever state it's in. Until then, I thank you all very, very much for listening as always. Any way you interact with the product to help feed the unholy monstrosity of whatever algorithm happens to be governing this. Thank you very much. As always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.